0: My name's Matthew Packwood, and welcome to Masters of Motion. Each episode I'll be talking to some of Australia's and New Zealand's leading motion design, animation and visual effects artists. Today I'm going to have a chat with Alan Doe, a senior 3D generalist and look development artist who specialises in lighting and texturing. A very important role for Alan was working with Ben West at Robot VFX, where through hard work, dedication, and good guidance, he turned himself into an expert craftsman in 3D and visual effects. He then moved from Sydney to Melbourne to Allura VFX, where he became a specialist in lighting and texturing. He's worked on advertising for household names like Target, Panasonic, and Cabri. He's highly respected within the industry and he's a founding partner of Cadre Pictures in Melbourne. Thanks very much, Alan, for taking the time and coming in and sharing your knowledge with us.
1: Yeah, Norris. Cool. It's good to be here. I'm glad that we're doing this.
0: What software, renderers, hardware... Uh, cloud solutions, are you using at Cardre
1: at the moment? Our main 3D software at Cardre Peaches is 3ds Max. Our main comp is uh, using Fusion and After Effects it's for the motion, motion graphics type work. But every now and again, sometimes it's easier just to use After Effects altogether or even both as well, depending because sometimes it's half motion graphics and half managing the 3D elements. So you know you work with Fusion and then you spit it out and then you, you feed it through After Effects as well and use After Effects as an editor sometimes. Yep. And our main rendering that we use is Redshift. We've recently sort of been using Cinema as well. And it's been kind of an interesting process working with Cinema and Max, especially with Redshift because you can sort of share files between each other with the Redshift proxies. So assets can be built with Max with all the AOVs included as well, with all the displacements, animation, and you can just publish that and you open up in Cinema 4D with Redshift running. Yep. And it renders it exactly the same way. And we've done a project like that in the past before as well, and that
0: was a very smooth process. And do you have any software for managing
1: your projects? Ben Bryan, he's our TD at Cardio, and he writes a lot of our proprietary software just to help manage and track um, all the assets and data and track. And it helps the producers out a lot as well so things don't get lost, yeah.
0: What does it take to become a freelancer with cadre pictures and then thrive?
1: Yeah, we just look for uh, 3D journalists using Macs. It's sort of like to have, has done a variety of jobs. When you have a good portfolio and have done like wide range of jobs, you generally come with like good problem solving skills as well. Yep. If you've got a background in V-Ray or Arnold, you have to start picking up Redshift because Redshift has kind of been relatively new. It's not a big deal. The way you you work with V-Ray, it's almost identical to the way you work with Redshift. So all your knowledge just would, you know, all make it comes across. The same as Arnold as well. Uh, the shaders especially, it's quite close to the way it's set up. And picking up the pipeline tools, you know, all the proprietary stuff that we've made, it's not that hard to pick up. It's not that scary. Yeah, I think the problem-solving part is probably what we like most at cadre Peaches. Yeah. Yep. Like we've had some Cinema 4D users as well and they don't use Macs at all. But they, you know, if they show that they can use a bit of Max, that's fine. Yep. You have to ask questions like, how do I get this up and going? How do I get the layers or whatever? You know, Just little simple, specific things. That's not a big deal for us. If you're a student and you want to
0: specialize in texturing and lighting, how should you approach creating good shots that will help
1: sell your skills to get you a good job? It was just recently somebody asked me like I really want to get into texturing, shading and lighting and he he was showing me some of his work and the asset was kind of average like it wasn't complete yet it was sort of you know still being made and stuff like that and and I was like oh yeah that's kind of tricky cuz you know you you to to demonstrate your texturing and shading and lighting you kind of need a good asset to begin with so yeah that's it's a bit of a catch 22 you know maybe find a really good asset off TurboSquid whatever yeah. and then start working on texturing, shading and lighting. And also I think at the time he was showing me like a dinosaur character he was working on, walking through the forest, you know. And um, and I was like, okay, cool. And it was it just looked like something as simple as like something like from Jurassic Park, yeah. kind of a character. And I was like, okay, everyone's seen that. Yep. But I was sort of saying to him, maybe, maybe show some process. Yep. Show the process where you actually looked at rhinoceroses, elephants, even like maybe birds as well as reference and try and match that sort yep. of their similarities and stuff in terms of like the way the, the patterns look or the scales look because that's where all this stuff comes from. You want to match references, not match movies. And, and then maybe during the breakdown you could show process as well, the references that you gather to actually come to that, uh, your final character. And you know, and then a turntable, of course. Okay.
0: What are the important skills you should have before specialising in look development and for people who don't know, could you tell us a little bit about the process
1: of look development and what it entails? I think it helps if you actually have like a good generous knowledge of each aspect of three D and even right up to compositing as well. Because like look development kind of a, like I think it's only been a recent thing where you know we've all heard of style frames, you know, it's still frames. Sometimes it's painted together and things like that. So look development is kind of like that. You know, it just basically gives uh, the clients or the agency. A better idea what the final thing is going to look like sometimes it's a steel frame and, you know it's yep. got 3d and comp and and all the back plates put together as well and you're just trying to match the final shot and you know and references back to the, the concept art as well or the initial art that sold them the idea in the first place so know, yeah, it could be a steel frame yep. but it's all 3d and 2d comping going as well A nicer look development is actually when everything's moving with the shot. So all the tracking's done, you know, if there's, like, match moving happening as well, and there's, like, you know, you've got all the rotor shapes cleaned up, you know, for anything, just to, so it looks like a final shot. So the position is sort of like a 3D art direction role. It's not really like an art director, because they they have to look at the entire project and make sure it fits into the entire job. Whereas look development, you're probably just looking at, you know, you've got the brief, you've got the design and you just want to fit it into the... And you're, you're also concentrating between the shot before and the shot after just yep. so it fits into the edit. You know, you're not just watching a shot in a loop by itself.
0: Yeah, yeah. What are the benefits to being a good generalist and why and when do you think you should specialize?
1: In any company that does, you know, visual effects and the whole... Pro- everyone's job is important. It's like a mosaic, you know. There might be a piece missing and stuff like that and, and you know, it doesn't work anymore you know if you're a really good journalist and you've you're kind of seen you yeah, at different areas you, you fill in those blank spaces you know okay you don't want to do everything because it's it's not as interesting you yeah. know know how the general process works and know know how to use the tools as well and you know from all the context from modeling texturing shading you know um, rigging just just the general basics you don't have to be a super expert at it and when you want to specialize in something i think it's like you know you you do it because you really like that area and, but then find something you really like and get, and get and get lost in it
0: all right well that's that's an excellent answer so once you've achieved those high quality generalist skills and you decide to specialize what's that experience like for
1: me it was really hard <laughs> it was it was it was like a, the Conan wheel of pain <laughs> you know I think we um, better
0: explain the Conan uh, pain thing yeah yeah <laughs> for those of you who don't know what the Conan Wheel of uh, Pain is. <laughs> what it actually is, is like a 1980s movie where Arnold Schwarzenegger gets captured as a child in like this barbaric sort of land in the past. Yeah, yeah. And he gets put on a wheel where he's got to walk around in circles yeah. when he's about five. And when he gets to about 19, he sort of becomes really muscly yeah. uh, and is really angry and then goes out and becomes this great warrior. It was like 15 years of pushing a wheel around in circles that turned him into an awesome sort of man. Massive <laughs> muscle man. Yeah. I think that's what it is. Is that is that right? Yeah. So was your wheel of pain worth it?
1: Yeah, definitely. I don't regret any of it. You know, you just learn so much from from failure and error. Do you think
0: there's many jobs in being a, a texturer or a lighting artist?
1: I think in film, definitely. To do texturing um, and shading and stuff for sure in film, yeah.
0: What software is doing something different and that you'd be interested in learning more
1: about? Substance Painter is a perfect example. You know, you actually texture, shade in real time. Yeah. You know, as you're going along, I think that's that's actually really rare. You don't have you can skip whole line departments in a way just just to do a turntable. Now, just to get your character or your car or whatever asset you're working on approved, you don't have to fire up Maya or anything like that. You know, you've got your models in there and and just, you know, start. And there's like, it will be lights in your preview scene as you're texturing and shading. You know, Um, I haven't personally used Substance Painter yet or Substance Designer, but I'm, you know, definitely going to get into it considering, you know, I think in some places that do film, they are getting things approved right out of Substance Painter. Okay. You know, because you're actually texturing and shading and lighting in the, in the same thing, and and by the time it gets moved to the next department um, to do to get the actual geometry and shading into the into the shot to publish the asset, it's automated, it's yeah. scripted, you know, uh, scripted across into your, whatever your workflow is Maya, Houdini, Max. Cool.
0: <laughs> what TV, music, books inspired you when you were growing
1: up? Before I even got into three D, I was really into illustration. Yeah, so I drew a lot. I love charcoal and giant sheets of paper. <laughs> you could buy me a box of reflex paper as a kid and, and crayons and stuff. I'd be really happy. I love cartoons a lot as a kid, like the Japanese cartoons as well growing up. And, and then moving on to like Nickelodeon stuff. I love Rugrats. That was, that was good. What is it with the Japanese cartoons?
0: Everybody seems to love them. Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I don't know. I've kind of grown out of it a bit, but I haven't watched any lately. I've sort of been watching a bit of Aven- Adventure Time and they love the character designs and that. When I was a kid, I'd never been to the cinemas yeah. and my uncle, he took me to the cinemas for the first time. And Do you remember the movie? Yeah, Jurassic Park. Okay. And that just blew my mind. And I was like, okay, I, I want to do this, but I don't know where to even begin with 3D, you know. And... Yeah, and then Aliens, I love monsters. Alien, Aliens, yeah, like, you know, my favourite my favorite uh, movies and, 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 and characters. And Predator is great too. I had this Stan Winston book at home. Yeah. And it's just got all his works, his, his company's done, and I just love looking at it, you know, all the practical stuff.
0: Those movies were pretty inspiring when we were growing up, you know, the hands-on models for Alien, Terminator and Predator were pretty cool.
1: Yeah, and I think that's kind of inspired me a bit growing up to always try and match practical as close as I can with, with, with the work I do.
0: Well, most of the people in this industry started off as sort of art illustration school. Yeah. Like, I have all those books as well. Yeah. I have Star Wars, The Art of Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, the ones from Aliens. Yeah. Uh, Geiger or whatever it was. Yeah, HR Geiger. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, and yeah, charcoal life drawing. Yeah. So do you use any of those skills anymore?
1: I do a bit. Sometimes I do paint overs over my 3D just to get things approved. You know, So you just grab photographs or just pan paint things yourself and just trying to figure out what the client or agency wants. You paint over your 3D or you paint over your comp. Yeah. A bit of liquefy with the with Photoshop here and there just to distort certain things if it's just the right uh, shape or perspective because or, that's always faster than yeah. trying to rebuild or something that's a throwaway. And you're painting over in Photoshop. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah.
0: So initially you were interested in 3D with Jurassic Park. How did you discover the actual art of 3D?
1: I think I was about in eighth grade and a friend of mine had a copy of 3D Studio Max. Yeah. And I started picking that up and uh, there were so many buttons. <laughs> you know, you make a teapot, you make a box and you're like, oh, okay, so this is, this is a viewport. And you're like, oh, okay, now you can render it. And the rendering is different from your viewport and... And then you know you don't have to draw things by hand every single time. You can just rotate something, and it's like, oh wow, undo! That's amazing, you know. And like you know, you can't do undo in real life. <laughs> I think it was around eighth or ninth grade when I actually started picking up through your Studio Max, and and that sort of progressed from there.
0: All right, well that's that's an excellent answer. So once you got started at work, has your Asian heritage affected your career in any way?
1: I don't think so. And if it ever has, I'm kind of like, well, you know, you probably don't want to work with those people anyway. Yeah. And when I when I ever had issues, if I ever had dealt with a situation, but I wasn't sure, I, I just I always go back to this um, Steve Martin quote: uh, "Be so good that they can't ignore you." Yeah. You know. And I was like, oh yeah, that's a good one. And and and, and the funny thing is, like, oh, that's something like an Asian parent would say to their kid.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, it's funny. I think that the people who work in this industry are more to the left in general uh, and are more progressive and are more accepting. Yeah. yeah. Um, I hope so anyway. Yeah. Uh, the people that I've worked with have been, yeah. which is really good.
1: The thing that's nice about this industry is like it doesn't matter what background you're from, it's the work that you yeah. present, and that's where it matters. The people who come to the
0: industry with different backgrounds bring different ideas, Yeah, and when you're working in an industry where it's about creative Mm. new ideas, new ways of doing things all the time. Mm. That's got to help. Yeah, definitely. Because they, you know, and that could be bringing people from overseas, it could be bringing different, you know, uh, ethnicities, women, whatever. Those different experiences, I think, help.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Over your career, how have you been treated as a professional and have you ever not been paid, underpaid or
1: ripped off? Early in my career, Um, when I was just graduated out of university and you you do whatever jobs are available you know whether they're simple or complicated you know you take it on and it was pretty early days of 3D so I think there were a lot of places that were just starting up and they kind of didn't really know what they were doing (laughs) you know the conditions probably weren't that great either (laughs) when I think back at it but yeah, I've been, you know, taken advantage of. Like, you know, I haven't been paid in some places. Um, yep. I don't, I'm not going to bad name anybody or anything like that. It's, there's no point. It's, it was a long, long time ago. Yep. Then, yeah, so there were places that I have worked at that I didn't get paid.
0: And you would invoice them and they just didn't pay?
1: Yeah, they just didn't pay. Um, some places I worked at moved office, disappeared. Yeah. And I've had the, the building manager ring me and ask me where they went to. And they just packed up, disappeared over a weekend, and didn't pay a whole bunch of people. <laughs> I remember doing one job where you know they said, "Yeah, we're going to pay you this much," and you know if you go overtime, you will pay you this much. And their job, their project went way over budget, and over time, and and they're just like, "Yeah, we can't pay you this much. We can only pay you this much." And I was like, and, when, and I was young at the time. I was like, "Yeah, fine." You know, I thought that was normal. Or there are places where you got to like call and haggle yeah. to get, you know, you got to rob to get your riches kind of thing. You know, it's terrible. But, you know, fast forward to today, standards are much better today because, you know, a lot of those things have been worked out. These days, I think companies know that if you keep doing that, you're not going to be around for long because artists just won't work with you. Yeah. You know, even no matter how desperate they are, you know, there's no point.
0: I think that you're old and wise, but I think that it's good to tell other people.
1: Yeah. You know. so just be careful who you work for. It's a very hard question to, you know, how do you know? Try to use your best judgment and be careful who you work for because, it does still happen today.
0: You've been quite successful in your career. How have you managed your work-life balance to get to the level of expertise that you're at?
1: When I was like a junior, mid-level, my work-life balance was non-existent. I'd worked a lot just to try and figure out how to do things on my own. (laughs) And so I was really confident every time a project would come up, I'd know how to handle it, I'd know how to do it. i don't think it was the healthiest way of doing things and i didn't have a lot of people around me that could help me out as as well when i was starting off there was no youtube or anything like that There was barely any courses like you had to like order cds and books and and dvd dvds didn't exist you gotta look after your health and look after your mental health if you don't have any of those your work suffers yeah um you know fair enough if you have a project on that has a terrible deadline or but it's a cool project, and if it's worth it, then, you know, you, you got to pick a sacrifice, right? So how's having a newborn baby change the way you work? The funny thing is about that you sort of cut out a lot of bullshit in your day, and you realize how much you kind of goof off yeah. and waste time and stuff. And, you know, you see how tired your wife is, and, and you don't want to miss out any smiles, you know, from your baby or anything like that. So you don't want to miss out bath time or anything like that as well. So you... Definitely become more time efficient.
0: Everyone says the same thing. You get more time efficient, you get more time, you leave on time. Yeah. But in saying that, the comedy of it is, is that realistically, if you're going to do good stuff, really hard stuff, once you've got kids, it becomes a lot harder. Yeah. Especially if you want to be a good parent. Yeah.
1: If you've got to pick up something new, like Houdini or something, or something else has just come out, it's hard. But the thing is, you've got to pick a sacrifice. Less Game of Thrones time, less binge-watching. you just <laughs> got to do the Conan Wheel of Pain and do it.
0: I reckon go hard when you're young. Right? Definitely. Pretty hard to go hard when you're getting out of bed before the sun comes up. Yeah, it's a, 4 know, o'clock
1: start this morning. Yeah, 4.45 a.m. this morning, thanks to my wife. She's uh, doing a great job looking after Matilda.
0: You've got that on record now. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, my wife is, yeah, she's amazing briefly
0: describe your career path how did you start working in 3D and then specialize in look development
1: My first 3d job was in architecture visualization and um, and from there I got into uh, all the generalist knowledge of like modeling assets texturing shading lighting and um, ray tracing with V-ray and that was pretty new back then. I started working at different places doing like broadcast titles places like uh, BDA ambience entertainment, and eventually, I started working at Robot VFX. Yeah. And I worked with Ben West. He's like a director and VFX supervisor. Working with him was the best thing ever. You know, he's like a film director on set. He'd shoot the commercial and he'd write the scripts and and it was just constantly story driven. It was great. And and then to work with him as if as a, an FX artist. And when you make changes and stuff like it was quite minimal, because yep. he knew exactly what he wanted. And working with him, it was was like, it was a masterclass.
0: So that was a major part of your career. Yeah. Uh, So where did you move on to after that?
1: After that, ended up at Allura Method TVC in Melbourne. And again, that was another massive experience for me. The tech there was amazing. There would be like whole dedicated interface for for doing certain tasks and stuff with Max and and V-Ray and the pipeline. It was like rock solid. It was just epic. After Method closed, um, well, the Method TVC department has. Yeah, after Method TVC closed. Yeah, yeah. um, we then, the head people at Method, we all got together, um, me, Siggy, Stephen, Ben, Brian as well, and we all got together and decided to set up our own studio.
0: Yeah, yeah. Which was cadre, cadre pictures, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, there, there was a lot of people at the Allura, yeah, PBC and Method as well. Yeah. So yeah, it's a shame that those days. I think those days are over in Melbourne. Uh, that you could build up to that size.
1: It was a very sad day. I remember the last days. The Bank Street office was closing. They were, they were packing it up. Yeah. Myself and Stephen. We were, like, you know, unplugging things. We were the last two. Yeah. And we were unhooking stuff and packing up the hard drives all the tapes and everything. And we packed it all into a box and we moved it over to the Thistleweight office. And this is, like, Allura history. Yeah. And all the jobs, all the projects, all the data, you know, it was all packed away. And it's all owned by Deluxe. Yeah. And it's kind of funny because I think back to it and I'm like, wow, where, where's all that stuff gone? I think of that shot in Indiana Jones, you know, the yeah. end shot where they all the crates and everything. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bit like that,
0: yeah. Yeah, I worked in the Bank Street building yeah. in, in the early two thousands, yeah. and I remember when they moved out of there and it all closed not that long ago. Yeah, it was, yeah, it's an end of an era. Really, it'd been yeah. there from the seventies. Yeah. Over the years, which projects do you think were the most successful and satisfied you the most?
1: We did two massive type commercials um, when I was at when we were at Method. Yeah. And that was like biggest jobs I've ever worked on because there was like over 30 people. It was gigantic. And the deadline wasn't that long and and, and changes were made a lot. But, you know, we got through it and the the commercial looked great. It was was the funnest project I worked on. And And the toys, kids' toys? Yeah, yeah, kids' toys. Yeah. So, you know, and, and they liked the first one so much they decided the second one as well. And it was, like, really close to the concept art that we had and we had a, it was very story-driven with the director.
0: They made those toy ads for many years. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, like Octavio, who I interviewed last time, had worked on a similar toy ad a few yeah, years yeah, earlier. Yeah, that was a Allura, Allura yeah. TVC as well, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah.
1: Another highlight was working on the Fugu and Taco film with Ben West and, yep. and um, that, was, that was hard work because yeah, it, was, it was just me and him doing most of the heavy lifting.
0: How long was the film?
1: I think it was like a 7 minute film yeah yeah and, and it was um, his personal project personal project yeah so yeah. you know using the company's resources in the, in our downtime we were busy doing commercial projects as well and then trying to squeeze in this um yeah. but it was so rewarding like i don't regret any of it like i it was like really great times working with ben and his wife his wife was like they were they shared the same office together his wife was a casting agent yeah. as well
0: so That was was great. And Ben moved from Sydney. You were in Sydney back then. Yeah, Sydney, yeah. Yeah, He's now in LA, is he?
1: Yeah, he's in LA. He's the creative director at Framestore.
0: That's the TV department part?
1: I think, yeah, I think, yeah, TV department part, yeah.
0: Have you had any failures in your career and what did you learn from them?
1: Be careful who you work for. That was probably one of my biggest failures because, like, being young, you just sort of want to, you know, you just take any job, you know, just to pay the bills or Get something under your belt, just have work to show, and um, did it affect you psychologically? Oh, definitely. What? You know, yeah. definitely. Like, you know, your mental health suffers, but also you doubt yourself a lot. You, you blame yourself a lot as well. Uh, what else? I think any failures. Yeah, looking after my health a bit more, <laughs> you know, because I was just so like pumped and motivated to just keep progressing. Even if it was like my own personal projects, just to show that I can do this sort of work. You know, no one's going to hire you if you don't have work to show. So when you
0: say health, is that like your physical, not exercising? Yeah, not
1: exercising. You know, you sit for crazy long hours and, you know, and you're not taking breaks and not sleeping. And you end up, you know, you've got to pick a sacrifice and,
0: yeah... All right, well, it's interesting. Nobody said that about their health, and I, I think that's a good point. I'm, in all my busy periods, my health has suffered.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, my health is like, I'm, I haven't got any, like, physical health problems, like permanent damage kind of thing, mm. but you could have. Yeah. Oh, well,
0: I'm all weight issue, like I get yeah, fat. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And what's the hardest thing you've had to do to progress your career?
1: You have to just do the work. The Conan will of Pain. You and that of When I was learning Houdini with Ben West, he forced me into like Alan. We're working on that Apple cider commercial. I don't want to see you open up Max for this. You've learned enough Houdini. Just start using Houdini now. You can use Max for your models and stuff like that. But I want you to rig this. I want you to do all the sims. I want that rabbit eating that butterfly in the end shot to be you know ninety percent Houdini. And I was like, oh no, I don't know how I'm going to do this. But yeah, I, I worked it out. Yeah. You know? And the hardest thing is, is like getting out of your comfort zone and learning something new.
0: And what do you do when you're out of your comfort zone? How do you respond to that? Break stuff, figure it out, fail, fail and fail better. And is it more effort? Is it like you just throw time at it and try and work it out?
1: Yeah, I mean, because you're constantly doing things in the short run. The benefit of doing those hard things is that they're really good for the long run. Yeah. You know, and... It benefits you in your life <laughs> if you do things in the long run. And even if it's hard now, but, man, it, it, it pays off, you know. Yeah, oh, that's, that's interesting. Yeah.
0: Cool. Let's talk about the part in your career where you learned a lot and really progressed. That was when you worked at Robot VFX. Can you tell us a little bit about your role at Robot VFX?
1: Like it just to be a super 3D journalist. But, yeah, just to be in-house as a full-time 3D person. If a big job came in, you'd hire, like, you know, 3D freelancers and... um and freelance compositors as well. But I was very, very lucky to work with him.
0: And what sort of projects did you work on while you were there?
1: Did a Hyundai commercial, like a Panasonic, Five Seeds. There's a Telstra commercial that never, we finished it, but we weren't allowed to show it. And that was fine.
0: Were they mixed visual effects shops with live action or were they all 3D projects? Yeah, mostly
1: plate-based. Yeah. So uh, live action mixed with like CG elements that you had to match in, Keep your VFX as transparent as possible, so that no one can tell they're three D. And
0: you did a feature while you were there as well,
1: a feature called Mental, and that was more compositing type work. And um, I was just there for mostly for the like match moving three D, two D stuff, and just so supplying support for all the the nuke artists. I remember there was a lot of like close up shots where there was an interior of a car with people are talking, yeah. and nobody could track it like yep. it was so tight there was no markers there was nothing cuz you need you know it was inside of a car show and outside was a green screen and Mocha was my best friend I learned so much about Mocha comes with after effects but the pro version is great and mm-hmm. at the time it wasn't as expensive the the pro version by itself but today it's about a $1000 I think but, but it's it's a great package like worth every cent every exactly yeah never yeah. leave home without it it's it's such a good package like for what it does you know image based tracking Yeah, it's insane.
0: Which projects in that period were the most challenging and most interesting?
1: The most challenging was the short film we worked on together. It was called Fugu and Taco. Could you tell us a little bit about the story and what the visual effects were? It was about these two Japanese salarymen, two Japanese average Joes, and they go to a sushi bar and they're drinking after work. And one of them has an allergic reaction and turns into a half man half fish (laughs) and then it becomes a documentary afterwards about his life a lot of challenging shots a lot of tracking head tracking a lot of head replacement type stuff as well and you know a small studio and we're still working on full-on projects in between all that stuff so you know we're working on five seeds at the time there was other stuff as well too
0: and how did you get the software for that? What what software did you use, and what how was the process of deciding what to use on that project?
1: So we were already used to using Max and V-Ray a lot and Nuke, and I remember Ben was testing out. I think he spent like about almost like three weeks or a month just testing out all the packages because, you know, he already knew how to use Ruleflow and and Maya and all these like third party cloth sim programs and stuff like that, and and, he, and your fume effects and stuff and. He was kind of getting sick and tired of these programs not shaking hands with each other. So he then went, okay, well, I'm going to test out Softimage. You um, know, the Softimage had Lagoya. It's mm-hmm. like this really interesting looking yeah. sim dynamic system. And then, he, then you went through Maya and see what was there. And then you went through Houdini as well. And then Houdini was just perfect because it all your fire, wind, smoke, cloth, dynamics, everything shook hands with each other. And when you added up the costs of everything in 2011, you'd save money. So Houdini was kind of like our own mini pipeline and we built really basic tools, but it was perfect.
0: It seems like a crazy idea to look at all the software. Say you went soft to Marsh. Yeah. yeah that then died in the butt. Yeah, uh, yeah. But and then you had to learn Houdini yeah. once you decided on it. Is that that's correct.
1: Yeah, that was um really hard. But for <laughs> comedy. But, but but Ben's background in architecture, like he's he's a pretty smart guy. Take a risk and a gamble, but people say how hard Houdini is. It is hard. It's good for the long run. Yeah. Because the way it's built and stuff, it's very structured, you know, and it's very long-term thinking as well. For him to take that risk and, and go for the Houdini route, that was like a you know, pretty big deal. And the stuff you could make and like the the effects side of things, it was really, really accurate. You don't see any intersections. Like yeah. when you do Dynamics or Sims, like it was just vertex perfect almost every time. And certain things were scary to open up, like the preset shaders. It was like spaghetti looking at some of the presets and the nodes. And you're like, oh, my God, this is terrifying. But, you know, you don't have to use all of it. You can build your own. You know, they give you the whole kitchen sink and you can build your own modifiers. I mean, your own tools yourself, you know, because they're all individually separated and... Mm -hmm. And it was, there was so many ways to export things out and bring it into Max and render it out of V-Ray, or or just maintain things inside of Mantra and, and Houdini and render that out.
0: You're not a coder.
1: No, I'm not. I'm not.
0: So you could still work it out from a technical point yeah here, yeah uh, without using yeah. without writing your own script.
1: Yeah, and and I think Odd Force was like a Houdini forum, and yeah. that was really helpful as well um and you know and you know just google and and whatever tutorials on vimeo or youtube at the time you know we just learn off that and one of the the greatest things that i remember when we were like trying to get something and i don't think it existed at the time where was like a soft selection like yeah. so you pick a vert and and you want to pull it and it wasn't like pulling just a single vert you wanted to have like an ease to, yeah. the, to the way you'd grab it and pull it that, that at the time it didn't exist so we asked the side effects people sent them an email. Could you guys make something for us? And then in like 24 hours, they sent us an email back. Here's, here's the, here's the node or script, whatever it was. And, mm. and and it worked. That's pretty cool. That's really cool. Yeah. 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 Anyways. And,
0: and did working with Ben change the way you worked
1: from then on? Definitely. I think it's really rare when you have, when you work in an effects place where you actually get to know a director. <laughs> Yeah. and seeing how everything gets put together and why things have been made this way and um, right down from the casting to like even, you know, yeah, I just, I've never experienced that before and it was really cool. Back to taco and what was it? Uh, 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 Fugu and taco.
0: What were the major challenges on that? Was it time? Was it, you know, technical
1: issues? Uh, well, was it learning the software? The hard things were like, you probably wouldn't be able to do this in any other package with ease, but for instance, like the, the character's head with the spikes, uh, Ben was setting up the dynamics for that so that you know they were moving around while on their own, the spikes. And, but at the same time, you kind of want it to look like a practical mask. It sort of wobbled like rubber. Yeah. You know, but at the same time, it's moving as well. You're able to art-direct all the dynamics. And a good example of this is like if you were to art-direct uh, cloth. Yeah. So pretend you've got like five different cloth sims. Yeah. But you like different parts of the cloth to animate in different sections. And how do you combine that together? You know, with Houdini, you can actually do that. So you can actually pipe together uh, different parts of the cloth and and just with a paint node, select certain areas that you like. Yeah. And you're able to like piece that together really well and, and just choose the areas that you like. But in these are like five different cloth sims. Yeah. So we did that for the fish character that was on the plate. Yep, Ben was hands on on the tools as well. Yes, of course, yeah, definitely. Mm. And he, you know, he worked out a lot of the dynamics. I think it probably had to do with his his patience and technical background with architecture as well. You know, that sort of uh, temperament helps a lot in learning Houdini.
0: And did that project uh, was it
1: well received? Did it win any awards? Yeah, definitely the highlight. <laughs> after that trailer was released was seeing the, the trailer on io9 or laughing squid yeah because it's like it's like gizmodo but they have like a sci-fi section of gizmodo kind of thing and yeah. that was a highlight you know and it was it was going crazy online you know you got all these views on youtube and vimeo and stuff and yeah and we did we did win awards yeah
0: so it's interesting that that block was a pivotal part of your career and if you hadn't had that you might have went in a different direction definitely
1: It was like a masterclass those three years, yeah.
0: Tell us about your role at Method and what was it like moving from Sydney to Melbourne?
1: I don't like the weather that much and I never understood what hay fever was until I came to Melbourne. Um, Vitamin D was really low. I didn't spend much time outdoors in Sydney, but uh, when I came to Melbourne, it was really low. (laughs) Um, I really love Melbourne. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Um, but when you when I went to uh, Allura Method Studios, I was blown away by the talent there the amount of tech, the custom tools, the development they've had there, like the, the tools over the years they've built to cater almost every single scenario possible. It was great.
0: Did you become more specialized at this point working in a bigger team?
1: I became more specialized in lighting and rendering yeah. setting things up in pre-comp just like making sure all the uh, render passes are working properly, the compositors have all the uh, special passes they need, any sp- additional AOVs, any selections, any special masks they need. Yeah. Just make sure that you know whatever th- app that's coming out of three Ds is, is, is going to be okay for compos- comp- comping to do as well. So, so I became more specialized in lighting.
0: So, what did you learn in that period, and how did that change the way that you work now?
1: I definitely learned so many more things i didn't know about max that's for sure because old and in-depth things that aren't really documented that yeah. well and and those guys just knew it all and it was great like and 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 i was just like oh wow i didn't i didn't know you could do that i was just like and uh the pipeline tools were excellent there yeah. as well and 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 then growing from that we went, went to cadre we learned a lot from that and we built our own tools and made things with less steps in between so yeah cool
0: and what were the projects that you worked on at Method?
1: Uh, the highlight was the Target commercials. Like, you had thirty plus people working on that one project all at the same time. Yeah. Under one roof, you had modelling, you had texturing, you had lighting, character animation, rigging, yeah. uh, and and all happening at the same time. That was amazing. My first job working at Method was Fanta. Yeah. That was great fun. That was a really nice introduction to. Uh, working with the guys there and, and the pipeline tools. And any liquid sims? I, I didn't do any liquid sims, but Octavio worked yep. on that.
0: So was Octavio freelancing back to...
1: Yeah, he was he was freelancing at the time. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, and it was great to actually not have to do so many roles all by yourself because yep. everyone had their own specialty. But 90% of the time, I was just strictly lighting, shading, texturing, and then pre-comping.
0: And do you feel the same sort of ownership when you're working in such a big team as what you did when you were working at Robot on the work?
1: Um, For sure there's less ownership, but you'll only be able to get there if you had a team that big in that amount of time to deliver something. Like your teacup can only be so full. If you want more grander looking projects, you're going to have to work bigger as a team.
0: Did you work in any of the film work that was happening at the time?
1: No, I didn't work with film, but film was like right next door. What were they working on at the time? I think they had like SpongeBob at the yeah. time. And that was cool. It, like I sometimes would walk by, say hi to the lighting guys, and, yeah. and, then, and then they were showing me some of the cool assets and stuff like that. It was really cool just walking through SpongeBob SquarePants. Yeah, SpongeBob SquarePants are three D when they became three D. I missed. I wasn't there when they were doing the Game of Thrones stuff. Yeah. Um, but uh, that was amazing. The yeah. Game of Thrones stuff. That was like, yeah, the Battle of the Bastards episode. Yeah. That was just epic. And it was a great,
0: such a great season to work on. It was probably one of the best seasons.
1: Uh, After Method Studios, we all got together and decided to set up our own studio with uh, me, Stephen, Siggy, Ben.
0: And you're a mix of different talents? Yes,
1: exactly, yeah. So Siggy and Stephen are are the producers and Ben's a TD and I'm a a super journalist.
0: (laughs) And do you think that it works well with having the different skills?
1: Yeah, yeah. Just looking at everyone's history and I look at, how, how much experience everybody has and we all sort of function about two and a half people i started adding up everybody's experience together and it sounds kind of corny but it's almost 100 years that's a lot of experiences with different you know regular or regular projects yeah there's no school or place we can pick this up it's just from experience
0: and did you have a passion to start your own studio
1: you know, you, you imagine, <laughs> oh, yeah, I'll start my own studio one day, you know, and, and, you know, when you're on your train ride in or you have a shower or something, just, and you know, you, you always imagine it but never actually really do it. I, 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 I never really planned on it. Yeah. So know, the it sort the guys of just hit, happened.
0: the guys just hit you up and said, do you want to start a studio?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So what makes you guys different from other studios, do you think?
1: Yeah, we're, we're a small VFX studio but we can sort of function almost like at a very large studio because we have like, you know, the appropriate TDs and and really talented artists. Some of us have worked in film and some of us have worked in high-end commercials and we have a very strong uh, production pipeline and a lot of it's like custom tailored to particular jobs that for the clients or agencies needs and stuff like that. We actually specifically make it for them and we build it project to project. Yeah. And um, I think, yeah, that, that's what separates us.
0: And what are the benefits to having these custom tailored pipeline solutions?
1: It saves us time instead of dealing with all the technical battles. Yep. It saves us, it gives us time just to keep focusing on making the work better and better.
0: And and this is one of the partners who builds this
1: sort of stuff. Ben Bryan,
0: he's our, our TD.
1: Having a partner who's a technical director
0: must really help.
1: Yeah, definitely. Like you know, because we're all self invested. How
0: do you come up with the new ideas to improve the pipeline?
1: And it's always that thing where, um, you know, you've worked at a previous company and you didn't like the way they did something or you like the way they did something. So you sort of, you, you work on that. Yeah. And there's times when you sort of like, even though you didn't like the way they did something in another place, and then when you start doing it yourself, you're like you're like, oh, that's why it was done that way.
0: So now I'm going to move on to the process of look development. What's the best way to brief a look development artist to get the best results?
1: You you, you want to see the storyboards, you want to see the concept art, um, just so that you know where they're coming from with everything and what's the motivation. And if you've given a shot and they want to see in context with the edit, but it's not like lit, there's no hair or the character's not complete yet. You just want to get it across the line just to demonstrate, oh, this is what it's the final thing is almost going to look like like you're like 99 percent almost there
0: do they usually bring you like style boards of textures or, or hair or whatever it is
1: so if they have like for example um like a car commercial they'll bring up reference images and stuff like that and yeah. you sort of look at that and you're like we want to mimic this and and um, this pattern or this type of lighting um this sort of texture or this sort of qualities yeah. you know and you know, they like the look of the reflections on this car. The reference they give you, it's a black car, but it has this nice reflection on it, but the car is white. You try to make aesthetics the same. Yeah, but on a different color. On a different color, and you know, it could be white on white. Yeah. How, do you, how do you manage that?
0: What's your process like from once you start the shot until when you end it? Sort of how do you, what are the steps that you take?
1: Okay, so if I've got a shot already, that's it's almost a complete shot. And it's not lit or anything like that. There's a first pass of textures on there, but there's no shaders and stuff like that. I would have a, a pin board on my next monitor with all the references from the concept art to the material references to any kind of images that motivates that shot that the client or agency or even an art, and an art director wants as well. You try to match everything that's on that board. So it matches the concept art and yeah,
0: Talk about the reviews process. How do you, the client review? Do you send them a still or do you send them a, a rotation or do you send them a shot mixed in with the plate? How do you review in the different steps?
1: Before you even start building everything in 3D, you want to just have a good, strong concept art, good, strong story. And if the creative is great, it's even better. And if they, can, if they understand the concept art, then great. Then you stick with that design. And then from there on, we then start modeling it uh, sculpting and then preliminary textures and shaders go on, and there'll be just a basic turntable of the character or asset if it's a car or a... if you have a character, you probably send off the turntable first. And after that, we then try to get it into a shot. There's a rigging process as well to rig up the characters, but if things need to be fast tracked a little bit, we'll make like a temporary rig. People who work in assets, rigging, and, not, and the model is probably not finished yet as well. So we try to get all those things happening in tandem. So everyone's busy. So what comes next get it into a shot with the plates match the lighting get all the effects on like hair or if it's like like cloth whatever get it all on there get it in the shot get it in the comp and just send them you know a still frame or a moving shot yeah because things are still being built in tandem at the same time the challenges with the look development type thing is trying to still maintain organization so if you talk to anybody who does like style frames you know, try imagine trying to stay organized with that. It's pretty tricky. And I think that's a big challenge for look dev artists because you're trying to do that with a moving picture and it's yep. 3D, it's everything. And there's sometimes certain things aren't built yet. So you just have to fast track and build something on your own and fill in those gaps.
0: All right, well, that's, that's an excellent answer. As a look dev artist, what's it like responding to
1: revisions? Sometimes if shots change, like we want to move closer to the character or to the object or the... You might have to actually up you know, fill in those details. If this sculptor is busy, you might have to like, you know, you then has to rework that asset or make a different asset where this is a close-up version of the asset. Yeah. Or sometimes if if they're busy, sometimes I'll I'll jump in and I'll do that myself.
0: Do you ever get projects where you've got to come up with your own textures, your own ideas on what it looks like?
1: This Cole's character, it was like a gingerbread man. There were some really, really, really close-up shots. I think it was like 20k resolution. Like human size. Yeah. That's on massive prints and stuff like that. So there's no textures that you can go get a gingerbread and reference photographs of that, but it doesn't really look like the gingerbread you imagine. Yeah. So and so I basically I just found some, you know, really high resolution sand textures and you basically work with that as a base. Yeah. You know, then you then start painting your own, you know, because parts of his back is a bit more cooked than the front, because the back parts it's a lot more there's less subsurface scattering in the yep. back because it's really cooked off. Whereas the front, it's like soft and doughy. Yeah. So you have a bit more SSS at the front. You break it down further. So it's, it's gritty, like bits of black nutmeg in there. Yeah. You just put those on yourself.
0: So you paint them into the texture. You paint that into
1: yourself, yeah. So, you know, you just build your own textures kind of thing. You sort of have to be slightly inventive because certain things look similar. Like, for example, like your iris the iris pupil sort of thing, if you need to create a displacement texture for that, you could almost just start off with a slice of an orange texture and use that as a base, And then, but then you continue re-sculpting that yeah. on your own. So there's certain things in nature that look kind of similar to other things. You can just borrow off that because you know that way you don't have to start from scratch every single time.
0: Yeah. So when the director reviews your lighting, texturing and modelling, what are the sort of things that they pay attention to?
1: Yeah, people I mean pay it's attention
0: to the most. It's it's
1: just like real props. Yeah. You know, when people build real props certain lighting conditions the prop won't hold up. If it's too close to the camera, the prop won't hold up. So if you've got like a fake arm or whatever it is that you're trying to set up, you know, it doesn't hold up on camera, you have to fix that up. It's the same goes with 3D as well.
0: They look for things that don't look right and then they point them out and you you try to yeah. correct them. Yeah.
1: And there's been even situations where you make it physically accurate yeah it might you might even shoot it and it'd be physically accurate but then that was what was on the day on the set and it still looks weird or wrong you then have to try force the illusion yeah so that it does match what you expect to see yeah but they're like why does that look cgi no no that's that's your product or that's your car or whatever you know and and they might go okay no we need to take that out you know, so you fix it
0: up. The same thing happened with sparks. Uh,
1: I put yeah. real sparks in right.
0: and I had other computer generated sparks and they're like, those ones don't look real. Yeah, yeah. But they had been shot in a studio. It was something yeah. to do with the way that I'd comped it. Yeah. The angle was wrong. Yeah, yeah.
1: You know. We're so used to seeing things polished today that even some things that are real look fake.
0: Let's talk about your pipeline. I know you guys are big on having a cool pipeline. What makes your pipeline interesting?
1: Working at a small company, you know, they have a copy and paste folder structure. So you got your, like your shot, you know, one, you know, and you copy and paste those that, that set up every time. All of these things are like hand placed. So there's a lot of human error involved. So we have like a, a, a shot folder builder. It's show specific as well when you, so if you're starting a job, you open up the interface and you're, you know, with the rollouts, you go, okay, what show is it? You type it in.
0: So it's automating all the files and f- yeah, folder, folder structure. structures. Yeah, and
1: it builds it for you. You know, you know. So you keep track of the versioning, the context, and all these shots, and it auto paths your files for you as well. And so things like assets, effects, animations, rigs, comps.
0: And you guys are building this software yourself. You
1: haven't. Yeah, got a- yeah. So Ben Bryan is our TD, and he he builds this for us. So yeah. yeah. To any big studio like ILM or Digital Domain, but the stuff we're talking about now, it's like, it's like a Tuesday. Like yeah. this is common knowledge, you know, but when you're by yourself or if you have never worked in a big company, I think there's some people who've actually been building these tools for free. I looked around and I saw online there's something called prism. Some guy built like a little mini pipeline. It helps yeah. you manage your folder structures for you, your 3d programs, your comp for you as well. And that's free. I don't think the guy maintains it. So kind of use at your own risk kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and there was another one as well called T I K manager. And that's free as well, but again, they're not maintaining it. Yeah, it's use it at your own risk kind of thing, you know.
0: So, how does your pipeline affect your profitability?
1: It, it affects you in, in, you in a huge way. I mean, for instance, like if you have thirty artists and everyone's wasting time repeating these same tasks again and again and again, you're just burning money. Yeah. you know, and the, and that's just taking them away from actually doing the work, and that and that's that's terrible.
0: So, when it comes to revisions. How can having a good pipeline improve that process?
1: Because I noticed a lot of small places, they when they render something out, whether it's 3D or comp, they would just render over what they did. Yeah. You know, Because it's annoying to make a new folder, up, make a new take or new version, make a folder for that, and then auto-path all your, your outputs into a new folder. It's a waste of time. But then what happens when the client comes back and goes, oh, yeah, you know that version 50... I want to mix that with uh, version three. How do you keep track of that? You know, yeah. and that's where it's going to suck. <laughs> yeah. For us, it's it's like literally right click. Can you tell us about your
0: transition into using Redshift?
1: Um, when we opened up Cardro Pictures, Redshift was in beta for Macs, and they were you were able to use it for commercial uses. Yeah. And we actually had two massive jobs on that just came in and car commercial interior shot, had to be photoreal, yep. and then we had a, a Reserve Bank of Australia job with uh, CGI hands, My with mind. CGI notes, and um, had to look photoreal again. So you were heavily testing Redshift before it all started, and, yep. and I had to make sure that this was going to work. When we were running with Redshift, I calculated that one 970 graphics card at the time was almost equivalent to one render blade
0: don't you mean eight render blades? Right.
1: Yeah. Okay. Um, one of the slow blades that packet method it was about eight.
0: So, did it still look good? Yeah.
1: Noise free depth of field with motion blur in camera.
0: So, do you have a permanent render farm, or do you have?
1: And we have a dedicated render farm downstairs, and it's slow to growing, mm. just under thirty okay. r- render machines. You know, that you you've got dual graphics cards running in that. So, using Nvidia g- graphics cards to okay. render this stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, because our, our local machines, um, when we're not using them, they go on the farm as well. And um, it's kind of hard to calculate, like, you know, because it's not CPUs, it's GPUs. Yeah. And, and the benefit of the graphics cards is that, like, you don't have to upgrade your whole computer. Yeah. You know, when you want a faster render machine, you just upgrade the graphics card. All the hardware can stay the same. Or, you know, as the year goes on, the graphics cards are getting, having more and more VRAM. So that's awesome.
0: Could you tell us about how you adapted your pipeline to
1: improve the daily process? Well, we like to daily things a lot. People who aren't familiar, daily is basically you save like a still frame or an animation or whatever you're at in a dailies folder, and it's all dated. We're not afraid to daily things that even if they don't look that great, we'll still put it on there anyway. So it's just so that we can help each other collaborate. You have a spare time. You check out what other people are doing, you know, and that's pretty much it. Yeah, that's that's, so we really support dailies a lot. And that's automated as well.
0: What methods do you use in your rendering process and your pipeline to streamline your workflow?
1: We have our own uh, render pass manager. So render pass manager is kind of like uh, a snapshot of your scene in the different states. So I'm sure in Cinema has this as well yep. if you're Cinema users or so it's basically it creates like a snapshot of your of your scene. So turning yep. things on and off, hiding things and it creates a render of it. And then when you're done, okay. it then reverts the scene back to as it was. Um, so if you have, like, your character, your environment, your effects and props and whatever, you can render those all separately in different
0: passes. So you're getting multiple files at the end?
1: Yeah, you get multiple yeah. files at the end in different folder structures and yeah. in a different folder, and, um, but it's all in the same 3D file.
0: And you can use that for comping?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, if you want to split things up, because I think if you don't have that, you would have to, like, save three different 3D files. But then if you have to update something... You don't have to go to three different files just to update one thing, you know, because then your shadows won't match up or your reflections are different.
0: Is there anything else that you find interesting about your pipeline that you'd like to chat about?
1: And, and you know, we're, we're really, we really do like publishing assets in a way where you write once and it reads into many scenes. Yep. So if you publish a character, it would automatically reads into all the other shots. You know, really like that. Unless it's like a one-off shot, it doesn't yep. really matter. Yeah, you write once and it reads in many shots. So we're really heavy on that sort of thing. And we have our own render manager as yeah. well. People are familiar with Deadline. Uh, ben built our own version of Deadline essentially. Yeah. So it supports After Effects, supports Cinema 4D, Max, Redshift, Standalone Redshift, and Fusion, Nuke. Have
0: you thought about selling this stuff?
1: The guys have talked about it. Because you know when you send it, when you build a product, you want to make sure it irons out all the kinks and things like that. And we are—we're we, actually constantly testing the, yeah. the our stuff internally, breaking it nonstop. Pat loves breaking the tools, which is great. Ben loves that.
0: Is he doing it on purpose, or
1: is just, I don't know. Yeah. It just sort of just happens. So he loves breaking it, and then Ben tries to fix it. You know, because you always run into these strange situations where, oh yeah, I didn't think about that, or you just run into this weird spot mm-hmm. and and it doesn't work anymore. You know. Yeah. So yeah, you know, if if we if the tool becomes more and more improved, we, you know, we might sell it. Yeah, yeah. so cool. Yeah, and then one of the big benefits of having a pipeline is the if somebody's sick or they can't make it in the day, because things are organized, you know, somebody else can pick up the work and continue on. The, the folder structures, it just it's almost like common courtesy, you yeah. know, like it's it's really it, it makes sense when someone else picks it up and and has to continue working on it. So yeah. Yeah.
0: It forces you all to work the same way. Yeah,
1: exactly, you know. Yeah. The best pipeline still to get up and talk to somebody. <laughs> you know.
0: All right. Well, that's that's an excellent answer. What are your thoughts on CPU and GPU rendering?
1: We're currently using Redshift. We have used V-Ray here and there. Mainly our core renderer is is Redshift. Okay. Like I grew up on V-Ray and moving on to Redshift wasn't that difficult. So it took about maybe about a week to sort of get to understand where things go and, and all the the uh, particular things how it works and stuff. So the differences is basically you, you require a graphics card to render on on a on Redshift and uh, you need an Nvidia graphics card. That's the difference. Is <laughs> the <It's a> cost <laughs>
0: difference? Do you think it's it's cheaper or better?
1: I think it's cheaper. You, you're getting more renders out quicker. You know you've got competitors like V-Ray, Arnold, RenderMan. And Redshift, um, and the difference with Redshift with the other renderers is that Redshift was actually built from day one to be a GPU renderer. You can't even use Redshift yeah. without an Nvidia graphics card.
0: What do you think the future is?
1: The future of rendering is kind of a strange one because you're getting games that look almost rendered. Now, yeah. it would probably be a hybrid. You know, they are making constantly shortcuts on how to make something real-time that looks pre-rendered. There are really clever people out there constantly making that happen. And it's just gonna get better and better. But I think rendering wise, rendering will still exist. Because ray tracing is very, very complex and computationally intensive. There'll still be rendered times. So have you
0: used Unity or any real-time stuff in your production work?
1: No, I never. But I've just seen like demos of Unity and Unreal Engine, and I'm just like so blown away by it. I mean, a good example is just like if you just look at the Blender Viewport. Yeah. you know like what they've done with the 2.8 release and that's free as well. their viewport looks rendered almost okay and so it's like looking at a game engine and you as, you as you draw your box and the scale you can see the SSS scale change as yeah. well when you draw your box and if you're beveling to something kind of skinny the SSS changes in real time as well and I was just like wow, this is amazing. So V-ray Arnold, you know they've they've recently uh, even RenderMan as well. They've kind of added the the GPU component to their render as well. So it's a hybrid, uh, which is great. I know you're a big fan of
0: podcasts. What makes a good podcast?
1: I like podcasts that just a general conversation. It's like you're a fly on the wall. The opposite to what I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, it's hard to cater for people who just want like fly in a wall discussions versus like i've only got like an hour in my day to listen to something you know i, I like just just listening to people how to just to see how they think and how they talk and just like honest discussion kind of thing so what's a good podcast that has that sort of thing happening some of the, the podcasts I like to listen to a cg garage um alan mckay has a podcast who's Ellen mckay <laughs> no, you know i love alan mckay um and Joe Rogan Experience, the the king of podcasts. Yeah. Uh, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. Hardcore History. Yeah, it's awesome. How many hours? How many hours? Yeah, I
0: mean, how many hours are the longer the episodes?
1: I think, I think the longest one was like four hours long, I think. Um, Sam Harris's podcast, um, Motion Hatch. Uh, motion Hatch. I'm a yeah, big fan of Motion yeah, Hatch. Yeah. She's on the business. Radio Lab, Stuff You Should Know. Stuff You Should
0: Know. What's that about? <laughs> Really, you, you're just banging them out, but what what are the ones what, what's inspired you the most? I listen to this one called The Moth. Oh, okay, yeah,
1: yeah, Stories yeah. told yeah. live. Yeah. It's just
0: really inspiring.
1: Yeah. I mean, I like listening to the Joe Rogan podcast because the variety of people we gets on, uh, sometimes they're a bit crazy, <laughs> and sometimes there's people that you never hear them on a podcast talk candidly. You know, someone like you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Neil deGrasse Tyson, he was in a boy band, and he's like a scientist. Uh, what's his name?
0: Uh, no, I'm thinking the guy from Queen, but it's not him. No,
1: no, but you know who I'm talking about. Oh,
0: yeah, he's on ABC. A... Science all the time. Yeah,
1: yeah, he's a cool guy. Like you know, and then you got like oh, what's his name? Oh, God. Uh, Brian Cox. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you got Sam Harris on there. You have got um, Elon Musk was on there. Anyways, and,
0: and last of all, uh, podcasts that you would recommend that are in our field. So.
1: Uh, Masters of Motion there
0: must be uh,
1: (laughs) there's not that many that's the problem like there's got to be more of these there's the Collective ah the Collective that's what I was
0: wondering what do you think of the Collective
1: the Collective is great he does his things in his own way it's very like relaxed talk discussion and it's interesting to see some of these people who sort of work solo as well and kind of heavy design based but some people he brings in as well like there's a guy who I forgot his name Vitaly Vitaly (laughs) <laughs>
0: i'm gonna butcher it but i think it's Vitali,
1: Vitali belgarov You can look it up <laughs> he creates these amazing robots and i think he works by himself yeah he gives him his files to them
0: so these files are like full robot cg designs
1: amazing cg robots this guy's like the best He would then pass his work his geometry to companies like MPC or waiter and, and i think he just works by himself yeah. You get people like that on there.
0: Is there an interesting project that you're working on at the moment?
1: I recently started doing a personal project for NoteFest. Okay. Yeah, and I hadn't done a personal project in, like, forever. <laughs> and I recently, just like, had a baby. Oh God, I should probably do one last personal project before things get too crazy. And I was listening to the CG Garage. Yeah. You had Chris Nichols, the guy who worked on Thanos' face. You know, we're talking about like CG skin and and um, the the detail in the pore map affects the way the roughness or the reflections work on your skin. Yep. So instead of dialing up roughness or glossiness, whoever whatever, whatever render engine you're using, they had a roughness of zero. It's like a plastic reflection essentially, right? Okay. But the detail of the pore map of the displacement changed your reflection amount, right? That becomes a glossiness. Yep. Right, or roughness, whatever you want to call it. So that breaks up your reflection. And that's what made his face look quite real. Yeah. Because you know, if you look at an IKEA stainless metal lampshade, there's a tiny, tiny little facets in there that break up the reflection. So then then they start talking about skin and I was like, okay, cool. And I was I want to try this out. I was building this CG baby and it was popping out of a cabbage patch and and the theme was fruit. Which is kind of a tricky theme to fit it all into. So I used that as a principle to to detail the roughness without using roughness maps. I I did it through all through displacements.
0: And have you finished?
1: Yeah, yeah. It's uh it's on YouTube and it's on Vimeo as well, yeah. I think. Yeah. Cool. It felt so good just doing a personal project. Pat helped out and Brian, our animator at, yeah. at um Pictures helped out as well on the animation and yeah. yeah. So a lot of the modeling and sculpting and texture and shading, I, I did that by myself. So yeah.
0: So, you said to me before the podcast that you in the future, you wanted to work on your family. How's parenting Matilda going? <laughs> Matilda, is that right?
1: Yeah, Matilda. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> being a dad is, uh, I'm still wrapping my head around the idea of being a dad. It's very strange. It's very rewarding, you know, when I see a smile and I'm like, ah, oh, you know, it's, it's worth it. Like,
0: it's, it's only going to get better and better.
1: <laughs> it, it can't get worse.
0: Better and better and better. When they get to about five, it's awesome.
1: Just hope a sleep gets better. It'll get better. <laughs> the sleep's brutal at the moment, yeah. All
0: right, well, I think uh, this is a great place to finish up. I wanted to thank you very much for coming in and spending your time with us. It's been really great.
1: Thanks, Matthew. Yeah, I had a great time doing this. There's, just, there's not enough of this awesome thank you
0: no dramas it was great having you if you like this podcast it'd be fantastic if you could go to itunes and give us a positive review it helps other people find us you can check us out at mastersofmotion.com.au where you can see all the work that we talked about today and lots more outstanding motion design work Or you can come find Matthew Packwood on Facebook where I post everything you need to know about Masters of Motion. You can find out more about Alan at www.cadrepictures.com.au. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you have a great week. Bye-bye.